Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're beginning a series in the book of Hebrews this morning, and in a way, this sermon is like the first three verses of the book that I just read. It sets the stage, provides something of an overview for where we're headed. But before jumping in to look at the background of Hebrews and and look at the message of Hebrews and how to apply that message to our hearts, I first want to just take a minute by way of introduction to tell you why I think now is the time for us to study Hebrews. We've long been in an age where skepticism reigns, whereas Hebrews, right from the very beginning, presents us with a God who speaks, skepticism says God hasn't spoken. All religions are man-made constructs. There's no absolute truth. There is no God, or if there is a God, we can't know anything about him or her or it. Consequently, we're in and in some ways passing through what has been referred to as a secular age. With secularism, no one religious belief is held over another, and there's no overarching story to make sense of life. Religion is pushed to the margins, and meaning is whatever you make of it. Not unrelated is what is being referred to in America as the great de-churching. Trevin Wax says this, the U.S. is experiencing the largest, fastest religious shift in our history. Researchers show, or research shows, about 15% of American adults, that's roughly 40 million people, have ceased going to church in the past 25 years, just in the past 25 years. This affects every region every theological tradition, every age group, every ethnicity, every education level, and every income bracket. He's drawing on data gleaned by Ryan P. Burge and unpacked by Jim Davis and Michael Graham in the book, The Great Dechurching, Who's Leaving, Why They're Going, and What It Will Take to Bring Them Back, which is the next book in my queue to read. If anybody wants to to join me in reading it, let me know if you're reading it. I'd love to talk with you and see what you're learning, and, and I'll do the same. Some have left the church and and left the faith entirely because they've experienced abuse in the context of the church. Most have left, however, because of the hypocrisy that is too often seen in us believers or because of legalistic teaching that is completely devoid of grace or because it seems that Christianity in America has become indistinguishable from a political party whether left or right, depending on what religious tradition you're part of. Between now and the end of June, 
we're going to be studying Hebrews because Hebrews addresses these kinds of challenges and so many other challenges simply by pointing us to Jesus as the way. Whatever is tempting you or has caused you to turn away, the author of Hebrews points to a better way, a better way than anything else that we could possibly imagine, that we could possibly come up with, the only true and certain way, the way of Christ. So there's three things that we're going to look at this morning just by way of introduction to this book. First, the background, background to Hebrews. Second, the message of Hebrews. And then third, how to take the message to heart. So background, message, how to take the message to heart. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We do pray that uh, just as the rain that came down upon the earth this morning as we were getting up and making our way to church, water the earth, and your word tells us will not return to you without having accomplished the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, so too your word you have said will not go forth and return to you without having accomplished the purpose for which you have given it. So Lord, here we are this morning in this place with this portion of your word open before us. We pray, O oh God, that by your spirit through your word, you will accomplish the purpose for which it has been given. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, background. Uh, who's the author of Hebrews? Your guess is as good as mine. No one, no one knows. The author doesn't identify himself. Um, throughout history, many have thought that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. Um, there's some reason to think that. For one, the themes of joy and suffering that you often see in Paul are found here in Hebrews as well. However, uh, in all of Paul's other letters, he identifies himself. And no one identifies themselves as the author of Hebrews. The other thing, if you were to look at the Greek text of Hebrews compared to all of Paul's other letters, you would see that the Greek in Hebrews is much more refined, kind of more heightened form of Greek than what Paul uses in all of his other letters. And so most scholars today say, you know, it's probably not Paul. And then, and then other people have been proposed, Luke, Silas, Priscilla, Barnabas, Apollos, um, but in the end, we don't know. What we do know from chapter 2, verse 3, is that whoever wrote it was an, a disciple of the apostles. Chapter 2, verse 3, it's clear that they had sat at the feet of the apostles, as it were, and they were writing based on what they learned from the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so we have that. Second, the form, it's actually not a letter. It's a sermon, which is really interesting to think about. Letters, in, well, first of all, your Bible probably has at the top the letter to the Hebrews. But in the original manuscripts, or the original, yeah, manuscripts, some of the earliest manuscripts, the word letter isn't there. It just simply says to the Hebrews. And the other thing that characterizes letters in the Old Testament is that there's greeting. I'm sorry, in the New Testament, that there's greetings. You know, to so-and-so, or to the church and so-and-so. There's no greeting here at the beginning of Hebrews. What the author of Hebrews does tell us in chapter 13, verse 22, is that this is a word of exhortation. He refers to Hebrews, and I'm, I'm going to, you'll hear me say letter to Hebrews all the time. It's just, you know, I'm just so used to doing it. But again, it's a sermon. That word of exhortation, that phrase is found only in one other place 
in the New Testament, and that's in Acts chapter 13, and that's where some synagogue rulers, after the word of God has been read, say to Paul and Barnabas, if you have a word of exhortation, please come and bring it now. Right, so this is a sermon. The audience, Jewish converts to Christianity. The author is writing this sermon to ethnic Jews who had embraced Jesus as the Messiah, most likely living in or near Rome. The date, best estimates for the date, is the mid-60s. Uh, we know it was before A.D. 70 because the author is referring throughout to ongoing sacrifices that are being offered in the temple in Jerusalem, and in A.D. 70, the temple's destroyed. So it's before A.D. 70. Based on references to persecution in Hebrews, in Rome, it's very clear that whatever the date is, it's after A.D. 49, when Claudius, under Emperor Claudius, persecution broke out against Jews and Christians. So for sure, somewhere between A.D. 49 and A.D. 70, um, but I think we can narrow it down even a little bit more and, and reference the mid-60s, and here's why. First of all, you know, why was it written? There was persecution that these recipients of this sermon had experienced and were likely about to experience if they weren't already experiencing a second wave of persecution already. So the persecution that they were already experiencing, I referenced it already, uh, AD 49, Emperor Claudius, Claudius was emperor at the time, in Rome, in the Jewish quarter of Rome, there were Jewish converts to Christianity, some of the very people to whom this letter was written, sermon, there we go. Jewish converts to Christianity were evangelizing Jews within the Jewish quarter of Rome, and it was leading to all kinds of, you know, disagreement, and, and ultimately, historians tell us, riots were beginning to break out. And Claudius brings down the hammer and begins to expel and imprison both Jews and Christians, Jewish converts to Christianity. He didn't distinguish, he just brought the hammer down. So that was happening in AD 49. Now, the author of Hebrews references that in Hebrews 10.34, likely a reference to that when we read this. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So there's a reference past tense to persecution that had taken place that they'd experienced at some level, and again, putting the pieces together from both, you know, secular historians of the day and what we have in scripture, that's probably referring to the persecution that broke out under Claudius in AD 49. But then there's this sense that there's more persecution that's either looming on the horizon or perhaps had already begun. Now, if you know your history, you know that in AD 64 under Nero, persecution broke out against Christians. AD 64 was the year of the great fire in Rome, a fire that raged for nearly three weeks, of the 14 districts in Rome, only four were untouched by the blaze, and three of them were completely leveled. Absolutely nothing left. Nero wasn't around when the fire broke out. And his own people, and we know this again from just you know, kind of secular historians, his own people blamed Nero. They said Nero had the fire started. And Nero, in an effort to kind of, you know, quelch that rumor, 
um, began this massive rebuilding project, provided all kinds of aid to those who were homeless, you know, just did all kinds of things that you would want a ruler to do, but, but even Roman historians said he was actually looking to cover something up, and then he actually decided to make Christians the scapegoat. It was those Christians that started the fire. They're the ones to blame. And so Christians in Rome began being martyred. In Hebrews 12, verse 4, the author says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, Christians were beginning to shed their blood around AD 64. They were being martyred. And so either the author of Hebrews was writing just before the persecution broke out under Nero and just, you know, led by the Spirit of God, had a sense that this was about to happen, or it had already begun to happen, and this letter sermon was being written to Jewish Christians who were in parts of Rome or just maybe outside of Rome in southern Italy that had not yet been touched by Nero's persecution. Either way, it was coming, and the author of Hebrews knew that they were tempted to turn away. They were tempted to turn away. He knew the pressure that they were facing. You either get arrested and lose everything, even perhaps your life, or if arrested, you just go ahead and renounce the faith. Renounce Jesus Christ, and you'll be set free. Everything will be fine. Or because the Jews in Rome at that time weren't being persecuted, only the Christians were, it was very tempting to simply abandon the way of Jesus and fall back into the old way. That's the background. But next, the message. What is it that the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to his audience, and consequently to us as well? First, there's no other way. There's no other way but Jesus. And second, with that, persevere through trials by faith in him. There's no other way but Jesus. Persevere through trials, through faith in him. Look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now, God has spoken. Again, right from the very beginning, we have in Hebrews a declaration. Our God is a God who speaks. Long ago, from the very beginning, God, Genesis tells us, spoke the world into existence. God spoke to Adam and Eve, calling them to, you know, fill the earth and subdue it. Satan said, did God really speak? Did God really say? <laughs> Implying that God did in fact speak. Our God is a God who has spoken from the beginning. The author of Hebrews tells us that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Prophets is just shorthand for the Old Testament authors. The point that we need to remember here, and we, we, we emphasize this quite a bit, but lest we, we think that the Old Testament is somehow deficient and the New Testament is what we need to be looking to, remember the Bible is one story from beginning to end. The Old Testament is not in some way insufficient. It was just incomplete. The whole Bible tells the story of what God is doing to rescue a people for himself through Jesus. The Old Testament just simply ends on a cliffhanger. It's in the New Testament that Jesus comes on the scene. 
God spoke by the prophets. God spoke at many times and in many ways, the author of Hebrews tells us. There was no definitive final word. There was no definitive final revelation from God until Jesus. Until Jesus. Jesus is God's final revelation. Verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Michael Kruger says concerning that phrase, last days, when you hear the phrase in the Bible, last days, don't think of it as a quantity of time, but as a quality of time. The time after Christ has come and before he returns. We all live in the last days. I got a, a, a text from someone yesterday who said, isn't the attack on Israel proof that we are in the last days? And what I said is, actually, we have been in the last days since Jesus rose and ascended into heaven. The last days began now. All that's left to happen in redemptive history is for Jesus Christ to return. That could come at any point. Everything that's happening in the world. Keep in mind, this isn't the first attack on Israel that led people to think that the end was imminent. This is what the book of Revelation teaches us, that there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be cataclysmic events that will take place before a final great cataclysmic event before the return of Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, we have been in the last days. The church has been in the last days since Jesus rose and ascended into heaven. We live in a very privileged time, therefore, don't we? There's nothing left to happen but for Jesus to return. That should give us a sense of urgency when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. But in these last days, Jesus has spoken to us. We're we're meant to put ourselves here as part of those privileged recipients of the revelation of God in Jesus. He has spoken to us in Christ through his son. In the past, God spoke through intermediaries, through the prophets. Now he has spoken definitively to us in Jesus. In Jesus, God himself comes on the scene. And so Hebrews challenges us right in these very two verses, the very beginning, will we listen? Will we listen to Jesus? Will we listen to what he has said? Will we listen to what God has said as God came on the scene in his son, Jesus Christ? We must because Jesus is superior to any other way. Jesus is superior to any other way. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author is going to contrast Christianity, specifically the fulfillment that is found in Christ, with the Judaism that the people had, you know, come out of, and seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of their Judaism, seeing Jesus as the Messiah that the Jews were looking for. Recognizing that, they put their trust in Jesus. And these people who are being tempted to revert back into Judaism, the author of Hebrews is saying, no, don't, don't turn back from the, that which is the fulfillment. Don't turn away from Jesus. Don't turn back to the old way. So too with people who are turning away or have turned away today. The old way is incomplete, the author of Hebrews says. And what we need to hear today is that whatever way we turn to is incomplete, it's insufficient. You know, statistics show that anxiety, loneliness, depression, apathy is on the rise. Secularism isn't the way. 
our own polarized society shows that political religion isn't the way. Don't turn to these things, the author of Hebrews would say. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And that's the second thing. Jesus is the only way, therefore persevere by looking to him. We cherish the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, and we should. Verses like Philippians 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Jesus in John 6, 37, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and none that the Father gives me will I ever cast away. Paul in Romans 8, 38 and 39, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We treasure these verses as we must. We have to cling to these truths whenever we feel as though we're losing all hope. We need to remember that no matter how loose our grip on God feels, God's grip is secure on us and he will not let us go. And yet, the author of Hebrews, not unlike other books in the New Testament, emphasizes the perseverance of the saints. Yes, God preserves his own, but we are called to persevere. And we get that in Hebrews. All throughout, there are these warnings about falling away. Don't fall away. You say, well, well the, the, the preservation of the saints means that I won't fall away. But we need to hear the warning, don't fall away, lest it be shown that you were never actually among those who were saved. Don't fall away. There's a series of seven admonitions or exhortations throughout the book of Hebrews that all boil down to this call to persevere. One of which you know probably now, Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. It's a call to persevere through the trials that we face. That's the message of Hebrews in a nutshell. There's no other way but Jesus. Persevere through trials by fixing your eyes upon him. How do we take this message to heart? Let's wrap up with this. The answer's in the title of the sermon. I almost never have titles to sermons that I feel like are worth being in there. Almost always, I feel like it's just be Mark's next sermon, right? This sermon actually matters. This sermon, I think, actually captures what we need to do. This title actually captures what we need to do in order to take the message of Hebrews to heart. Behold the glory, know the story. Behold the glory, know the story. Behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Right off the bat, in these first three verses, we get seven ways in which the author points us to the glory of Christ. Seven, a number of completion in the Hebrew Scriptures. And he was writing to Jewish converts to Christianity. In verses 4 through verse 14, there's actually seven references to Old Testament passages that support these seven ways in which Jesus Christ is given to us to be glorified. All right, so let's just run through them real quick. Verse 2, Jesus is the heir of all things. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The world belongs to Jesus because he is the only son of God. The firstborn is the rightful heir of all things, and Jesus is the firstborn son of God. He is the heir of everything. It all belongs to him. But 
the author goes on in verse 2 to say, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the creator of all things. There's no more clear way to point to the, to the deity of Jesus Christ by then saying that he is the creator. Everything else is created. Jesus, you know, the world's not only made for Jesus, it's made by Jesus. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He upholds the universe. Verse 3. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This world, this universe that he has created, he's actually omnipotent. He upholds it. He's the ruler of all. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Look again at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Richard Phillips, in his commentary on Hebrews, says this, in the same way that we never would see the sun or feel its warmth, if its radiant beams didn't come to earth, so too without Jesus we would know nothing of the glory of God. But Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 tells us we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that word face just simply refers to the person of Jesus. We know the glory of God by knowing Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. Again, see that in verse 3. Like the imprint on a coin reveals the, the character of the figure that it represents. So too, Jesus reveals the very character of God. We know who God is. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father in John chapter 16. Jesus is the, I'm sorry, John 14. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Verse 3, Jesus made purification for sins. After making purification for sins, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then finally, he sat down. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. One of the things that the author of Hebrews is going to do is emphasize the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. It's one of the consistent themes that he keeps referring back to. One of the things that this culture cannot do is address the issue of our abiding sense of uncleanness. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows that at some level down deep, they are not clean. We fall short of meeting even our own standards, let alone the standard of God. And Hebrews, time and again, comes back to the fact, you want to be clean? You really want to be clean? It's in Jesus, the great high priest, who is seated. You know, in the Old Testament, tabernacle, temple, there were no chairs for the priests. They were standing all the time because the sacrifices had to continually be offered all the time for the sins of the people. Jesus is the high priest who is seated because the final sacrifice has been made. His own very life. Behold the glory of Jesus. I am praying that as we make our way through Hebrews, one of the things that will change among us is that we will be a people who behold the glory of Jesus by faith. But then the second thing the author of Hebrews encourages us to do is know the story. Behold the glory, know the story. Verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. 
Now you say, well, this is written to Jewish converts of Christianity. Of course he's referring to our fathers. But keep in mind, we're grafted into the olive branch. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ have Abraham as their father. The Israel of God is the invisible church, those whom God has chosen from board the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God is our father. We stand in a long line of God's people. One of the things that the author of Hebrews is doing here is not only showing the difference between promise and fulfillment, don't turn, don't turn back to the age of promise. You live in the age of fulfillment, in the age of Jesus. He's come. Don't turn back. But he's also, I think, in a way that's so important that we'll see when we get to Hebrews 3 and his references to Psalm 95. He's saying, but you're like them as well. They were a wilderness people wandering toward the promised land, looking to the city that has foundations, and so too are you, and so too are we. We are the wilderness people of God making our way through this earth that is not our home toward that great city that has foundations, whose builder and architect is Jesus. We need to know that story. We need to know our place in that story in order to really take to heart everything that the author of Hebrews has for us. All right, let's wrap up. In in John chapter 17... Jesus prayed that his followers would be with him in order to behold his glory. Did you ever catch that? When you go back to John 17, we're used to thinking about Jesus praying for our unity, that we would be one as seeing the Father as one, are one, that the world might know that God sent Jesus. But Jesus also prays there that we would behold his glory, that, that we would be with him. One day we will be. Jesus prayed that because he knew that all of our our longings, all of our deepest desires, everything that we ultimately need would be met in our beholding of his glory. And so he prayed that we would see his glory. And one day we will by sight. Until then, until then, we behold his glory by faith. And it is only as we do so that we will discover that Jesus is presently our hope in the wilderness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great book, this amazing sermon that is Hebrews, where we thank you for preserving it for us in the Bible, that we will be able to study it, meditate on it, and by the power of your Spirit, Through the power of your word, have it transform our very selves. Lord, we pray that as we begin this journey through this letter, you would help us to recognize that it is a word for us in the midst of our journey. Lord, we are your people, just like Israel of old, making our way as exiles in this land toward our eternal home. Lord, would you help us to hold fast to the hope that is ours, as we fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen.